to Chersome. We're back, bitches. <laughs> Our unpodcast. Yes. There shall be no pods. There are no pods here. There's only casting. <laughs> only <Dos>? peas. <laughs> only, <laughs> only beans. Oh, okay, sure. Human well. beans. <laughs> All right. Hi. Welcome. Uh, for those of you who are watching this, listening to this on YouTube. There is a link down below in the profile where you can get your own RSS feed by inputting the private link into a podcast player. So there can be pods, but you have to do it yourself. Um, on the other hand, if you would like to download each individual episode of Cherry Stem, here's how you do that. Let me show you. So what you do is you go to patreon.com slash Anna Cherry, and then you get to choose to be a supporter, but you don't have to, but you should, but you don't have to, but you should, <laughs> but you don't have to. I suggest selecting the uh, challenger tier mode because it'll give you some after show bonus goodies and things like that. However, you just keep scrolling on down and then you will find Cherry Stem. There it is available for public. Uh, you can download it, you can play it, you can see all of the resources that we have and uh, you can just keep doing that and finding all the cherry stems and all that good stuff so um here's how you do that i'll do it the good stuff you got the good stuff we do have the good stuff uh the good stuff today is a bit of a um let's see i'm going to be just as surprised as everyone else today good 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 that's my goal <laughs> i am introducing uh, it is cherry stem after all it is cherry stem, indeed. I am the cherry, therefore it is my stem. And uh, today we're talking about the brain. Brainception! And that is actually a title of one of the articles that we're going to be looking at. Um, what we're doing Brainception? today... Brainception? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Literally, yeah. Uh, so what we're doing today is we have two news articles about the brain. Uh, and then we have a article that we're going to read along. So it's kind of a, it's a mix. It's a mix of a news feed uh, and a mix of the pits. It won't necessarily be the pits because it's not necessarily a bad article, but <laughs> we don't know that yet. So we're we're getting to the to the bottom of things, to the pits, uh, to the center. Right, see already already there's something about magnetite. Heck yes, but maybe not. I'll uh, we'll find out. <laughs> so the first article we're gonna cover is this one. Do human brains have bits of magnetic material? The Earth and Space Science News says we do. Here's the first map of the magnetic mineral magnetite. Okay, it is magnetite. <laughs> in the human brain. <laughs> Turns out that our brain stem may be full of it. Whoa. Fucking sweet. Craziness. Nice awesome. Stuff. All right. Um, this particular image is um, titled as humans have areas of the brain that are more magnetic than other areas. The upper region of the brain, the cerebrum, has low levels. Light colors show higher levels of magnetic resonance. So it seems it is the bottom of the brain that has more magnetism than the top of the brain. Except for this little region here, because that looks lighter than the rest. So uh, whatever is happening back here. Um, I think that's the back, or is that the front? Can't that's tell. That's the back. The, I thought it was the back, but... Um, all right, let's read the article. Right here. This was published on December 12th in 2019, so about literally exactly a month, a month and a day ago. So, apparently scientists have mapped, um, oh, let's bring us back to our pages. 
All right, so um, the short and the long of it is that scientists have mapped uh, magnetic materials in human brains for the first time, revealing that our brains may selectively contain more magnetic material in the lower and more ancient regions. So researchers used uh, seven specimens that were donated in Germany to measure brain tissue for signs of magnetite, which is the Earth's most magnetic mineral. And as a side note, uh, from what we know, it is magnetite inside the beaks of birds that allows them to find their way yep. around. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I don't it's know. A, I thought they just part of the... You're the bird expert. Yeah. <laughs> part of the going north and south and how, part of how they navigate. Uh, it's apparently appears to be because of the presence of magnetite. Neato. Uh, let's make sure our sound is nice. Oh and man! Loud. So that, so how fast our um, magnetic pole is shifting right now may uh, disrupt uh, bird migration patterns. Say that again. Um, the our magnetic pole is shifting like crazy. So oh. like within the lifetime of a single bird, um, it, it will fuck with them. Interesting. Because it's just our our the magnetic uh, pole is like flipping out like. Uh, when, when you talk about the scales at which a magnetic pole would normally shift, which is geological time scales, right now it is flipping out at a crazy fucking, um, everybody should be concerned about it rate. Uh, yeah, I believe the last indication is that it's moving about six miles. A year? Something, I, I, something crazy. Yeah, huge, like. Enormous. Just really tremendous no, it's, it's fast. I think it's even faster than that. Um, the sound is perfect now. Excellent. Good. Um, so I don't need to deal with the blue Sherpa that is not responding anyway. <laughs> I turned up the microphone. Um, all, I opened up the, the microphone all the way to the highest. And that should have uh, fixed any potential quietness we might have had. Um, so yes, there is a, a comment um, that I'd like to address simply because it's something we've mentioned before. So for our more reoccurring listeners, um, you would be familiar with the therapy or the uh, rather what, how we usually bring it up is the fact that you can change a person's morality by putting a magnet to their head. I'm sure you've heard us say that. Um, the changing a person's morality, like that is how we launch into it uh, many times. And that is actually what they do. They, they take a magnet and they put it on the right yep. temporal parietal lobe, which is like sort junction. of uh, junction, which is sort of above your ear area-esque. And uh, by applying certain frequency of magnetic resonance, they're able to have a person go from it is the outcome that matters or it is the intent that matters to it's the outcome that matters and vice versa. So that is sort of one of the, that's why it's called a morality thing because you know, how do you determine um, uh, when a person's at fault, if they intended to kill someone but didn't succeed. So is it the intent or the outcome that matters? Or if they didn't mean to kill a person and accidentally did it because some poison got mislabeled as sugar. So which, you know, how, what sentence should you pass in these both cases? And you can have a person go between the two just yeah. with the, the strength of their decision of what should be punished more can be changed based on um, these changes right so just from the outside no no mm -hmm. invasive surgery no just a strong mag uh, magnet on the outside yep and uh yeah that's and so of course uh, that to me um sort of uh raises my my little conspiracy fedora to to go into some of those instances where you have people that claim to be hypersensitive to electronics and um they find themselves wanting to live in a Luddite-like lifestyle as far away from wires and um, anything that could produce a magnetic field. And it sort of starts to kind of make sense a little bit, maybe, um, that our brains might be affected by magnetism in more ways than we realize, given that every electric field has a magnetic field. They are intertwined. You can't have one without the other. 
or you can't have one without the other. No. It's, yeah, so you can have a magnetic. But can you have magnetism without electricity? No, you can't. No, well, wait. Rocks don't have electricity. They're just sitting well, there. Let's not get into that. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's advanced level <laughs> sciencing. All right. Um, so, all right. That's the tangent of magnetite aside. Um, back to the article. Um, we are gonna continue with it and talk about these seven brains that were donated in Germany. So scientists have uh, shown that other types of life, such as a uh, special kind of bacteria, contain magnetite, and of course birds, as we mentioned. Uh, but the distribution of magnetite in human brains has been kind of unclear. Uh, there's been no systematic study or anything like that. There's been no mapping. And so they were trying to, you know, to cover that gap. So um, the results could shine a light on why humans have magnetite in their brains to begin with, which remains an open question. Uh, Stuart Gildard, the lead author of the study and the scientist at Munich University, said that their results show that magnetic particles exist in the, quote, more ancient, end quote, part of the brain. Uh, he said, we thought that from an evolutionary standpoint, that was important. Hmm. So in general, um, scientists have first discovered hints of uh, magnets in human brains all the way back to 92. There was a paper that reported that tiny crystal grains, some barely wider than a DNA strand, were found in human brain tissue from seven patients in California. Seven again. No. <laughs> the crystals looked uh, just like tiny magnets in um, magnetotactic bacteria that help them navigate along geomagnetic field lines uh, in lakes and saltwater environments. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much the only other than, I don't know why they're not mentioning birds. Uh, but are mentioning this bacteria that has magnetite in it, which I've never heard of before, so that's kind of cool. Um, navigating geomagnetic field lines and lakes and saltwater environments by having magnetotactic bacteria, that's cool. Uh, but scientists are not sure why or how magnetite gets into human brains. Uh, magnetite could serve some physiological function, um, such as signal transmission, but scientists can only basically speculate at this point. Further study um, obviously is needed, and there's also an even more mystery as to how magnetite arrives in the brain in the first place. One study of the frontal cortex of 37, 37 humans' uh, brains suggests that we breathe in magnetite from the environment. Hmm. Uh, but other researchers, like Gilder, who is the lead author of this current Munich study, thinks that magnetite comes from internal sources. So, um, to find some answers, he, um, Stuart uh, Gilder and his team dissected seven brains and measured their magnetic strength and orientation. The brains had been preserved in formaldehyde since the 1990s, uh, when relatives and guardians of the deceased donated them to science. The brains came from men and women between the ages of 54 and 87. Um, so I guess that seems like a compound variable that they've been marinating in formaldehyde since the 90s, but I don't know. Given that there were, was DNA found in California patients, mm -hmm. or you know the, the seven California people, where it was like tiny grain bits of yeah. magnetic material was found there too. Um, but uh, I would like this to be studied more because <laughs> this seems, seems like a what, confound. I don't know. What, what does? The fact that these brains have been hanging out since the 90s in formaldehyde. Because well, they, they could have been absorbing some ambient magneticness. I don't know. No, no. It's a material, not a not just a field. I don't know, man. No, it could have been gathering. Who knows no. how, what relation formaldehyde has to the brain and what no. kinds of things. No. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> All right. 
Unless uh, there is somehow magnetite in formaldehyde, which I highly doubt. They rhyme, so you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they could. Then it is irrelevant. It could be. You don't know. Uh, but yes, you can basically make a conservative or a liberal on demand. Yep, that, that's pretty much what that means for, for the morality thing. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, Gilder typically studies rocks in his lab to ascertain their geologic history, but his latest study was not so different, he says. Quote, I could... Actually, did you know that um, uh, autism spectrum is related? One of the changes in autism spectrum has to do with uh, modulations of the... The junction? The right temporal parietal junction. Makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, when Gilder studies a rock, well, I mean, it does make sense because autistics can't uh, measure intent. They can only measure outcome. Right. Yeah. So. Um, or rather, that's why they can't measure intent. Which is why it would specialize in a bit this specific direction of mm -hmm. morality. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, when Gilder studies a rock, uh, oh, that's, uh, his quote is, um, I could essentially apply everything that I do to rock to brains. Um, he, uh, the scientists cut the preserved brains into 822 pieces. Wow, that's a lot of pieces. 822, damn, and ran each sample through a magnetometer, a machine used to measure records of Earth's magnetic fields in rocks. Magnetometer, best word. <laughs> Magnometer. Oh. <laughs> no, magnetometer. It may be so. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it has the word magnet. Oh, meter. Oh, yeah. cool. Magnetometer. Magnetometer. <laughs> New favorite word of the day. <laughs> Uh, when Gilder studies a rock, he measures its magnetism in two steps. First, he tests the rock's natural strength, well, magnetic strength, not just a rock strength, which will typically be low because rocks are bad at creating orderly magnets. Even if rock contains magnetic particles, they dipoles point at random directions, potentially canceling each other out. Um, second, Gilder uses an ele electromagnet to apply a strong magnetic field to the sample, and this aligns the tiny magnetic particles so that they all face in the same direction, therefore magnetizing the rock much better. Uh, when he tests their magnetic strength a second time, he sees the full strength of the magnetic signal from the rock. Quote, um, he said that if I measure something that is more magnetic after I've applied a very big magnetic field, that's proof that this material contains magnetic recording particles. Makes sense. Gilder applied the same two-step technique to the brain samples. The comparison revealed that the human brain had a detectable magnetism after a magnetic field had been applied to the samples. The results show that magnetite was in almost every piece, quote, of the specimen, Gilder said. So the exact pattern is something that they're going to be looking at next. Um, this latest study reveals that the lower regions of the human brain, including the cerebellum, Actually, I would like to show you guys this image uh, because you can see all the way down to the brainstem. Um, and of course, the lowest amount, uh, the, the, or the highest, uh, what? Yeah. yeah, the color. In terms of like the warmer the color, the more magnetite there is. Uh, and there it is, uh, magnetite levels, uh, 48 or 50 is, is at the top and then eight um, is at the bottom. So the higher the number, the more magnetite, and there it is, uh, shown mostly in, well, the strongest in the brainstem. And then it travels up um, and has some areas at the top and sides that are magnetic. But for the most part, it seems majority of it, the strongest concentrations in the brainstem, hmm. which is what I could see. Um, I could see why they would, um, I could see why they would think that uh, 
it's not just inhaled, but naturally I produced. I'd love to uh, put that uh, that map over uh, overall plasticity and variation of brains and, and see if there's a relationship between the plasticity and, and variation of uh, connectivity uh, yeah. between individuals that uh, corresponds to that map. Hmm. Yeah, that would be fun. Um, so yeah, this latest study reveals that the lower regions of the human brain, including the cerebellum and the brainstem, had two or more times the magnetic remnants of the upper regions of the brain. The upper regions uh, compose the cerebrum, which is responsible for reasoning, speech, and other tasks, which you would see as more common, more, uh, more uh, modern, I mean. Um, whereas the lower regions handle muscle movement and automatic functions like heart rate and breathing, therefore more ancient, more the reptilian brain. When they talk about that, they're talking about your brainstem because it, uh, well, not the brainstem, but the lower regions of the brain, because they do affect things like movement, um, temperature regulation, feeding, just like really basic animal stuff. Um, and then language and symbolism and et cetera becomes, uh, is layered on top of that. So one of the, the analogies we had in neuroscience um, college is <laughs> the neuroscience college that I went to. <laughs> one of the analogies they had is like an ice cream cone. And so you have your, the, the first scoop is the reptilian brain. Then you add a second scoop, that's the mammalian brain. You add the third scoop, that's the primate brain. And that is actually how the brain uh, is organized. The lower regions are the most ancient ones. So that, that analogy is a pretty good one. So uh, Gilder said that the patterns emerged in each of the seven brains, and it showed no difference depending on the person's age or sex. The brainstem had consistently higher magnetization than any other region, although only five of the seven brains had brainstems intact. Um, Joseph Kirsch... Kirschbink, a professor at CIT, California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, who was not involved in the study, um, said that the work, uh, quote, confirms the biological origin of the brain magnetite, end quote. Kirschbink said that the results in the study closely matched research he had performed in the lab, but the latest research had 100 times more data. The scientists took pains to limit contamination, uh, cutting the samples with a ceramic knife and staging the experiment inside a magnetically shielded room in a forest far from urban pollution. Love that. Um, they removed samples with high levels of natural magnetic strength that could have been polluted with fragments of the saw cutting into the donor's skulls many years ago. Even with the potentially contaminated samples removed, the data still showed an anatomical pattern. Gilder presented the research uh, this month in December at AGU's fall meeting uh, 2019 in San Francisco, California. That is fucking wicked. It is cool. Let me look at it for a second. The image? Yeah, no, no, the, the actual map, yeah. The, uh, look at that. No, no, the, the, I want to see the other one. Let's have our audience also look at it. So that they're not just waiting in silence. <laughs> yeah. So for those uh, we'll zoom in on that, who are that, watching. That slice right there, the bottom one. You got it. I will do my best. Yep, makes sense. Thalamocortical loops. Look at that. They're leading right into the thalamus area. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, so right right in here would be where the, the thalamus is. And so there's actually these... Uh, Rings? Yep. Interesting. And then there's within the, the prefrontal cortex, there's the, the own, its own little area that could be a looping sort of structure. Huh. And then the rear brain. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah the, the strongest is the strongest is in the brainstem, um, going into whatever the 
fuck this is? What is that? Uh, is that the cerebellum? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Because back here is the optic nerve, I guess. Because that's no, not the cerebellum no, no, back here. Nerve, but I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, the, all the optic, all the vision centers yeah. back here. Yeah. So that's cool. We're going to look at that more later ourselves. <laughs> so yeah. See, I bring good things. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So the next one, which may or may not be hogwash, hosh posh, bug bosh. <laughs> um, scientists hodgepodge of hogwash. Yes. Hello, cute. Scientists uncover a never-before-seen type of signal occurring in the human brain. Whoa. Science alert. Is it quantum quantumness? I hope not. <laughs> quantum space magic. Um, that's is that's been pretty great. Um, in terms of like how many articles have been recently coming out on um, quantum space magic. On talking about the no the, the what is the keyword the problem in physics the the crisis the crisis yes the that, that crisis word. in physics yeah <laughs> literally that has been going on for a long time and getting worse and worse and worse yeah. exactly yeah, that one there's been so many articles even more now coming out oh no not only that there's people now publishing in major journals are now mm -hmm. starting to uh, accept articles on Bohmian physics again mm, good yeah. You did it, yay! Yeah. I won't get any credit, but yes. But yeah, you did it. <laughs> only the most best historians of our podcast that is not a podcast. Only a, fucking, only a fucking AI would be able to figure it out. You calling me an AI? No, no, I mean <laughs> a super intelligent AI doing digital archaeology. Oh, what a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> All right, um, all joking aside, who are we kidding? <laughs> Never joking aside. This has been published in January 6th. So, like, seven days ago. Scientists have discovered a unique form of cell messaging occurring in the human brain that's not been seen before. Okay, that sounds cool. That Doesn't sounds it? really cool. It does. Excitingly, the discovery hints that our brains might be even more powerful units of computation than we realize. Oh, yeah, it's called the subconscious, duh. Well, no, not just that. There's like, oh, the, the, in the whole AI and, and that sort of discussion, they, they call it uh, trans-Turing computation. What's that mean? It just basically means that there's this, uh, there's this P versus NP thing that has to do with whether or not something is computable and whether or not you can, it, it's, it really has, it's hard to describe in any short terms on doing, uh, doing horribly even I'm doing bad at doing bad. What do you do? You're, you're really distracting me with whatever you're doing with the kitty. His head is moving. He's not keeping his head in the same direction. As I'm moving the chair side to side, his head is also swiveling with me. <laughs> I mean, it's not just sitting in one place. He's changing his head direction. So anyway, there's, a, there's, a, there's an issue with linear computation methodology that makes it where there's a, there are specific time periods and, and it's, sometimes it's not knowable whether or not something can complete. And there's a, a variety of issues around computation that, uh, that make it such that there are, um, there's theory around whether or not something can be completed in much greater times. And this is all surrounding the whole idea of quantum computing and, and, and all of that. So when we look at human brains, they seem to do computations that are faster than our, than our current linear methodologies. However, in by linear, you mean like uh, um, computers, computers, 
like right. normal mechanical things. Normal mechanical computing requires the orders of operation sort of things. Mm -hmm. In other words, you can't just do absolutely everything simultaneously all at once. Mm -hmm. Reality does do absolutely everything all simultaneously at once, which oh. is why analog computation is now the biggest thing in quantum computing. Mm -hmm. uh, the, it, it, I've been right. We read an article on that right. in a couple weeks. Well, ago. now finally people are constantly talking about it. They they know that what is what's a, the real the real that's behind uh, quantum, not the quantum space magic woo right. bullshit, but the real behind it is analog computation. Computing at a tiny tiny level, so we call it quantum. Because our understanding of the whole com computing process and even math. Uh, is it has to do with the way that we even think about the world in a linear stepwise process, not in a uh, everything happening simultaneously sort of process. Uh, that consideration of computation is something that is new that only goes with analog computation. And so that's that's where the whole idea of trans-Turing computation and um, which basically what we're talking about is uh, is if we go beyond this particular problem then all of the cryptography and all of the things that were safe before if somebody cracks it and and finishes this methodology before others have access to it there'll be this huge overwhelming uh computational um, advantage. advantage and so hopefully everybody in the world will come to the same level of they'll break through at the same time otherwise it, it will be uh, it'll disrupt the entire world's markets. Uh, you know, you, you won't be able to buy things online securely at all. There'll just be this, uh, you know, the, all the all the transactions that happen, you know, on the, um, you know, in uh, in the markets. Uh, they're, they're, that'll all Wall get, Street. Yeah, and, well, yeah. it'll all be fucked uh, if if you don't have security being provided by that same level of computational power because it's a, it's such a ginormous step. But so that's so there is this question. And uh, of whether or not human brains are capable of a type of computation that is far greater than our what we normally do in our mathematical models and in our 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 regular um, methodology of computing, and so and so that's kind of what this subject matter is about. But go ahead and continue reading. Cool. Um, researchers from institutes in Germany again and Greece uncovered a mechanism in the brain's outer cortical cells that produce a novel graded signal all on its own, one that could provide individual neurons with another way to carry out their logical functions. By measuring the electrical activity in sections of tissue removed during surgery on epileptic patients and analyzing their structure using fluorescent microscopy, the neurologists have found individual cells in the cortex use not just the usual sodium ions to fire, the found cells that that used not just the usual sodium ions to fire, but calcium as well. This combination of positively charged ions kicked off waves of voltage that had never been seen before, referred to as calcium-mediated dendritic action potential, or the DCAPS. And that's something we mentioned the other day, um, calcium uh, for motor neurons and things like that. We were recently talking about that, but not here. <laughs> uh, brains, especially those of the human variety, often compared to computers. The analogy has its limits, but on some level they perform tasks in a similar way. Both use the power of an electric voltage to electrical voltage to carry out various operations. In computers, it's the form of a rather simple flow of electrons through intersections called transistors. In neurons, the signal is in the form of a wave 
of opening and closing channels that exchange charged particles such as sodium, chloride, and potassium. The along a and they're talking about along a given neuron, a single yes. neuron. So there's we're still this in this methodology. This ions is called an extra potential. Thinking of individual um, neurons separate from the the collections of them. Yeah. So go ahead, continue. Instead of transistors, neurons manage these messages chemically at the end of branches called dendrites. Um, quote. The dendrites are central to understanding the brain because they are at the core of what determines the computational power of single neurons, end quote. Sure. Humboldt University neuroscientist Matthew Larkham uh, told some guy somewhere. <laughs> told Walter Beckwith at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. We know that sure. place. Dendrites are the traffic lights of our nervous system. If an action potential is significant enough, it can be passed on to other nerves, which can block or pass on the message. This is the logical underpinning of our brain. Ripples of voltage that can be commu communicated collectively in two forms. Either an AND message, if X and Y are triggered, the message is passed on, or an OR message, if X or Y is triggered, the message is passed on. Arguably, nowhere is this more complex than in the dense, wrinkled outer section of the human central nervous system, the cerebral cortex. The deeper second and third layers are especially thick, packed with branches that carry out high-order functions we associate with sensation, thought, and motor control. It was tissue from these layers that the researchers took a close look at, hooking up cells to a device called a somatodendric patch clamp to send active potentials up and down each neuron recording their signals. There was a eureka moment when we saw the dendritic action potentials for the first time, said Larkham. To ensure any discoveries weren't unique to people with epilepsy, they double-checked their results in a handful of samples taken from brain tumors. Uh, while the team had carried out similar experiments on rats, uh, the kinds of signals they observed buzzing through the human cells were very different. More importantly, when they dosed the cells with a sodium channel blocker called TTX, tetrodotoxin, uh, they still found a signal. Only by blocking calcium did all fall quiet. So we, I think we have to step aside for a minute to cover that normally calcium has nothing to do with neurons in the brain. It's usually only motor movement. So finding calcium at all as a signaling molecule in the brain is weird. I mean, right? Uh, I don't remember that specific That That is uh, my impression. Delineation. I mean, I could... Go into principles of neuroscience under literally, my <laughs> literally underneath your monitor right now. Yes, I could go in there, uh, but it would make a lot of noise. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure calcium specifically activates uh, muscles and only muscles, and it's sodium, potassium, and maybe chloride, but mostly sodium, potassium yeah. that uh, modulates the action potential, which is how neurons fire. So um, they're not really saying anything about it, but yeah. What do they mean by the dendritic the, uh, action potential? Because, right, the because fact the, that the, the action said, potential goes all the way down the axon. Right, uh, the fact that Duke said. The so it, what are they saying? I don't know. The fact that he mm -hmm. said it was a eureka moment mm -hmm. to see. So that. is it only the dendrites that are firing? So is it firing specifically within dendrites? I don't know. Okay, let's continue forward. <laughs> That's the question. <laughs> I don't what do they know. mean by this dendritic pathway? We already passed it, so well, that's all there was. That's it? That's yeah, it. that's all. That's, that's, that's all. That's okay, all. but they're calling it something in particular. What's it called? Uh, 
There's a Eureka moment when we saw the dendritic action potential. Oh, no, no. I'm talking about the entire article. They may continue talking about it. Oh, they might. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if they will or not, but we'll try. Yeah. Um, So uh, when they dosed the cells with a sodium channel blocker called tetratoxin, they found a signal. Only by blocking calcium did all fall quiet. Finding an action potential mediated by calcium is interesting enough. That's what I figured, because that's not usually... It's it's always sodium and potassium that modulates that. So why the, what the hell is calcium doing there? Uh, but modeling the way this sensitive new kind of signal worked in the cortex revealed a surprise. In addition to the logical and and or type functions, these individual neurons could act as exclusive or intersections, which only permit a signal when another signal is graded in a particular fashion. Uh, researchers write that traditionally the uh, X or is what they're calling exclusive or, the XOR operation has been thought to require a network solution, um, is what the researcher said. Now we can look at the actual study instead of, um, I mean, we will link the actual study, uh, not just this uh, article, about, article it. about it yet. More work needs to be done to see how the um, calcium action potentials behave across entire neurons and in a living system. Not to mention whether it's a human thing or if similar mechanisms have evolved elsewhere in the human king, uh, animal kingdom. Technology is also looking for our own nervous system for inspiration on how to develop better hardware. Knowing our own individual cells have a few more tricks up their sleeves could lead to new ways uh, for network transistors. Exactly how this logic tool squeezed into a single nerve cell translates into higher function uh, nerve cell... Tr- tr- this article is written so poorly. Um, Exactly how this new logic tool squeezed into a single nerve cell translates into higher functions is a question for future researchers to answer and find a better author. So the actual study from the AAAS, um, dendritic action potentials and computation in human layer two-third cortical neuron. Two and three. Two and three? Two slash three. Oh. Well, that's dumb. Should be and instead of slash. Yeah. <laughs> or spaces between the slashes or a dash or something. Uh, so. Human dendrites are special. A special development program in the human brain. Dry, or you want to read that? Sure. Special development program in the human brain drives the, uh, the disproportionate thickening of cortical layer 2 slash 3. This suggests that the expansion of layer 2-3, along with its uh, numerous neurons and their large dendrites, may contribute to what makes us human. Uh, Guyton et al. uh, thus investigated the dendritic physiology of layer 2-3 pyramidal neurons in slices taken from surgically resected brain tissue in epilepsy patients. Dual somatodendritic recordings revealed previously unknown classes of action potentials in dendrites of these neurons, which make their activity far more complex than previously thought. These action potentials allow single neurons to solve two long-standing computational problems in neuroscience that were considered to require multi-layer neural networks. So this uh, XOR pattern, uh, I believe, is what they're talking about. So normally you'd need the okay. whole system to vote on something, but these neurons can do it themselves. Yeah, the active electrical properties of dendrites shape neuronal input. Uh, I, it's it's loud. <clears throat> All I right, can sorry, hear you. I'll be louder. 
The active electrical properties of dendrites shape neuronal input and output are fundamental to brain function. However, our knowledge of active dendrites has been almost entirely acquired from studies of rodents. In this work, we investigated the dendrites of layer two and three pyramidal uh, neurons of the human cerebral cortex, ex vivo. In these neurons, we discovered a class of calcium-mediated dendritic action potentials whose waveform and effects on neural output have not been previously described. In contrast to typical all or none action potentials, D-caps were graded. Their amplitudes were maximal for threshold level stimuli, but dampened for stronger uh, stimuli. Hmm. These D-caps enabled the dendrites of individual human neocortical pyramidal neurons to classify linearly non-separable inputs, a computation conveniently thought to require multilayered networks. Conventionally, Conventionally yeah, that makes more sense. Uh, <laughs> it's awfully convenient. So let's see. So the teal deer is there is no calcium mediated action potentials, as far as we thought. Now suddenly we're like, oh shit, there are. Yeah, and it's not just that, but it's... But the way they react to things is weird and different and Yeah, normal all, uh, may, normally action potential happens and it spreads from one part of like the axon to the next part and it goes down all the way down to the dendrites. Mm -hmm. I'd like to know how, where, are these starting somewhere on the dendrite? Are they, is it when it arrives at the dendrite, does it then, does the dendrite then make a decision? Is that what, what's happening there? What, I, you know, it's not clear what they're saying that this action potential along a dendrite is because dendrite ex extends from the axon. So what are they saying? Hold on. Or, wait a minute. Yeah. I can't read it. It's under a paywall. Fuckers. Um, okay. Maybe there's another article about it where other people give better information, better science communicators than, than this article. Than science alert. Screw you, science alert. You're bad. <laughs> they did all right, I guess. Yeah, okay. But uh, it sounds like what they're saying is that it's also um, has to do with field effects, which that's one of the the, the long-standing. So going back to the discussion from earlier about uh, you know what the brain can do, there's a long-standing discussion about whether or not the brain acts in that very linear fashion mm -hmm. where you know like wire you got wires and then and those wires do all these and the tinier the wire the better because you don't want them having any crosstalk you know, between each other, they shouldn't have any impact in each other. You should be able to send one signal down one wire. And when they get to a junction, then there's a, there's a decision made at that junction. It's very linear. However, in an analog computing sort of regime, what you would have instead is the fact that when you've got electricity traveling down a wire, there is a magnetic field induced in that wire, mm -hmm. which is around it. If two wires do not have any kind of shielding um you can induce uh electrical potential you can you can basically change what's going on in the other wire simply by sending electricity down an adjacent wire unshielded right so the 
issue then is uh, has been a long-standing argument about whether or not like the there's a quote i forget what neuroscience said it that the that the brain is too warm wet and noisy for field effects to uh, be part of how the brain works however in the past decade or so people have been able to point out that there is synchronization effects where groups of neurons firing simultaneously along similar uh, pathways along you know side by side can add to each other and create larger field effects that can impact uh, action potentials in nearby neurons so in other words okay so when when a neuron fires there is sort of a voting you know scheme where dendrites are are sending a signal to fire and you have to have enough of them within a certain period of time to open up the the channels and cause and go over the threshold which causes the action potential to fire down the down the axon and so that's that's how you normally do it however whether or not where, where that threshold is where the action potential threshold is whether or not it will um, that can be modulated by local field effects created by the firing of nearby neurons so that means that the noisiness is not noise it's signal in other words the the uh, and this is once again this is controversial opinion here mm -hmm. um that is the uh well, oh, while controversial, there are plenty of neuroscientists who are uh, much more along. This is this goes along with the Bowman Pribram holographic, um, you know, uh, model of, of brain function. But the um, so the idea is that the local firing causes sort of like a a, a membrane of a field that uh, has to do with how those neurons are synchronized and firing, and then that can impact as the field is going over an, uh, a given neuron that can change it can bring it up or down in the likelihood that it will fire because the local electromagnetic field is changing what the action potential threshold is and you're speculating that it might be those calcium channels that are doing that because uh, i don't I'm, think we had enough information to even go anywhere with this yeah so yeah the the uh this is just what they're talking about is yet another one of the linear elements but you have to have both the linear and the nonlinear elements working together to be able to accomplish any kind of new computing regime. They're talking about, they're basically seeing the brain under the terms of our most um, uh, well understood computing models for that work for computers. You know? Yeah, I found that so. weird that that's like, that's not analog computing, that's digital computing. The way they were describing the whole article is just about like logic systems and yes, computing. Logic it was games. very strange. And so, and, but at the same time, they were talking about, uh, it seems as though they were hinting at field effects, and I'm guessing uh, here at this point that there is, I wish we could get through the fucking paywall. I know. Um, I wish that too. We need to become a AAAS member. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Let's do that. Let's be a member. Um, so yeah, that was exciting and then not exciting because it's like, ooh, fun. Not enough information. Fun, but not enough information. However, let's learn about how the brain learns about itself. Brainception. Whoa, brainception. 
my inception. If understanding everything you needed to know about the brain is a mile, how far have we walked? Asks Jeff Lichtman, professor of molecular and cellular biology at Harvard University, to his students each year. Some students guess about three quarters of a mile, others suspect perhaps a half or a quarter of a mile. Professor Lichtman's answer, about three inches. The incredible complexity of the human brain is what enables us to perform the diverse tasks we do every day from breathing, walking, and talking, to thinking, reading, and problem solving. At a fundamental level, this complexity is due to the intricate structures of the nearly 100 billion cells that make up our brain, neurons. One of the many incredible capabilities of our brain is remembering. Take a moment to close your eyes and think about a place you love, somewhere that makes you happy. Perhaps you can remember details of the scenery, some of the sounds, the smells. These memories you just conjured up somehow felt real, but what are they really? There's much scientists have yet to learn about how we remember, but we do have some basic insights. It is widely accepted that the main biological process underlying learning and memory, known as long-term potentiation, LTP, involves the strengthening of connections between a specific set of neurons in response to their repeated stimulation. So this memory you just recalled is in fact a collection of cells that have fired together more than others around them, and these cells can therefore send each other stronger signals. But what does it mean for a signal or connection to be stronger? And how do these cells make changes to just one tiny connection out of the nearly 100 trillion in our brain? Before we go into more details about how this works, we must understand the structure of these neurons that make up our brains. Most human cells are somewhat round and keep their DNA packed in a compartment near their center called a nucleus. Neurons, on the other hand, are spindly, irregularly shaped and highly compartmentalized cells. At their center is the cell body, which contains the nucleus, but stretching out from the cell body are many branch-like projections called dendrites, which receive signals from other neurons, and a single thin axon through which information is sent to other neurons. Along each dendritic filament are hundreds of tiny protrusions called synapses. These synapses form the junctions where information is transmitted from one neuron to the next via the release and capture of neurotransmitter molecules. Each of the thousands of synapses on a single neuron is unique. In long-term potentiation during learning and memory formation, specific synapses between repeatedly firing neurons are strengthened. This synaptic strength depends in part on the quantity of neurotransmitters released into the synapse, as well as on the number of receptor molecules that bind these neurotransmitters at the receiving end of the synapse. One can therefore imagine that in order for a specific synapse to strengthen, Extremely localized changes must occur along the length of the dendrite to lead to there being more receptors at the required location. Membrane receptors and the signaling molecules inside cells with which they communicate all fall into the family of molecules known as proteins. Proteins are created by molecular machines called ribosomes which translate a messenger RNA into a protein it encodes. In reality, the mRNA is a long, single-stranded molecule containing information from our DNA on how to make particular proteins. While the transcription of DNA to mRNA occurs in the nucleus, translation of mRNA into protein occurs outside the nucleus in the cell cytoplasm. Traditionally, mRNA is translated by ribosomes located right outside the nucleus. In a neuron, however, protein synthesis becomes a bit more puzzling, but as a result, also more interesting. If mRNA is being made and exported at the nucleus, how do neurons achieve such highly localized changes in protein expression 
all the way out into individual synapses, hundreds of times further from the nucleus than where proteins usually made. Are certain proteins made near the cell body and then shuttled out to where they are needed? Or are some mRNAs and ribosomes transported through neurons such that they can respond rapidly to a local stimuli and make more of the required protein on site? How do these mRNAs, ribosomes, and or proteins know exactly where they need to be and how they get there? It is as if someone took a satellite image of the moon and discovered several cars there. With some special cameras and detection techniques, they found that they were American. Yet the question would still remain, were the cars somehow sent from the United States to the moon? Or were they made in factories on the moon after instructions for how to build them were delivered? How did the cars or factories and instruction manuals get there? Scientists have discovered that indeed, some mRNAs and ribosomes are located out in the dendrites, far from the cell body and nucleus, and they have found evidence that local translation does occur in dendrites and even at or near synapses. However, however, many questions still remain unanswered. Which specific proteins mRNAs are locally translated and in response to what stimuli? What are the timescales of mRNA and ribosome transport, protein translation, and the spread of newly formed proteins? Answering these questions represents a crucial step towards understanding the molecular processes responsible for functioning of our brain. Scientists have developed several strategies to begin to investigate these questions. Methods such as RNA sequencing reveal information about all of the mRNAs present in a collection of several cells and their relative abundances. Similar methods exist that reveal information about the proteins expressed in the set of cells. In addition to these more global techniques, other methods, methods exist for visualizing and quantifying individual molecules of mRNA, individual proteins, or newly synthesized proteins in single cells. For example, single molecule fluorescence in situ hybridization, or SM-FISH, enables imaging of individual mRNA molecules in cells using fluorescent tags that act like molecule highlighters or label a specific mRNA of interest. However, knowing the locations of mRNAs or of proteins does not reveal information about where exactly the ribosomes are making the proteins from their mRNA templates. This author, um, I, <laughs> I work at the Tyrell lab at Caltech. Uh, where recent graduate Dr. Kelly Burke developed a fluorescent assay to detect ribosomes interacting with mRNA, which adapts the SMFish to visualize and characterize the translation of mRNA. Essentially, to study the translation of a particular protein, we use similar molecular highlights to tag all of the mRNAs that encode it, as well as ribosomes interacting with those mRNAs that produce the protein. More precisely, in Flarim, Fluorescent probes are designed to interact with and label mRNA, and a separate set of probes detect the interaction between ribosomes and the mRNA. These probes are all short, single strands of DNA that are complementary to, and therefore bind to, sections of the mRNA of interest. Each set... I'm trying to kill your alarm. I can't. Yay, thank you. Each set of highlighter probes fluoresces a unique color, and much like real highlighters, when they label the same molecule, they overlap and give off a new color. Hmm. Using confocal microscopy, a form of fluorescence microscopy that enables 3D imaging of objects, like individual neurons, we can observe bright signals from the mRNAs, red, and see where in the cell it overlaps with the signal corresponding to mRNA-bound ribosomes, green, to produce a yellow spot. 
By counting the number of overlapping yellow spots in our image, we can determine how many of the mRNAs are being translated by ribosomes to make new proteins in a given moment of time. The goal of my work is to use flarem in neurons to answer outstanding questions about local translation in neurons. I intend to examine translation in dendrites, at synapses, and eventually in axons, which have not been as widely studied. I'm currently working with mouse neurons from the hippocampus, a region of the brain involved in learning and memory, to investigate mRNAs that are suspected to be locally synthesized in dendrites. A couple of these genes, such as ARC and CAMCHI 2 alpha are of particular interest. ARC interacts with other proteins and neurons to help regulate the levels of certain receptors at synapses. CAMCHI 2 alpha on the other hand, chemically tags receptors and other proteins to make some receptors bind neurotransmitters more readily or to increase the number of receptors at a synapse. By causing changes in the amount of or type of receptors at synapses, these genes help alter synaptic strength and are therefore implicated in long-term potentiation. Intriguingly, both ARC and CAMK2-alpha have both been shown to be necessary for proper learning and spatial mem special memory formation, and mRNAs for each have been found in dendrites. Thus far, we have shown that flarem works in neurons, and we have used it to detect translations of a widely expressed structural protein in cells, beta-actin, as well as CAMK2-alpha and ARC in the cell's body and the dendrites. Furthermore, we have been able to confirm a known increase in translation of the two genes that occur in response to neuronal activation by growth factor protein known as the brain-derived neurotropic factor, BDNF. With these promising initial results for the application of flare into neurons, we are now looking towards investigating proteins whose pattern of translations are less well understood. In particular, we are interested in using this technique to determine the extent of local translation of glutamate receptors. Due to their prevalence and role in binding glutamate, the most abundant neurotransmitter in the brain, these receptors are implicated not only in learning and memory, but also in various neurological conditions, including epilepsy, Parkinson's disease, and multiple sclerosis. We, still, we will use different methods of stimulating the cells to see what may lead to an increase or decrease in the local translation of these glutamate receptor subunits. Today, many diseases, including many cancers and brain diseases, are treated with therapies that have been found to cure patients but whose mechanisms of action are unknown. This often leads to undesirable and at times harmful or deadly side effects. By gaining a deeper understanding of how the molecules and cells in our brains actually work and interact with one another, we can intelligently develop new, more effective cures to neurological diseases and physiological disorders. One of the most exciting I find it extraordinarily sad that they have to explain that in this article. That understanding is better than throwing shit at a wall and seeing what sticks and building your 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 knowledge superstitiously. But that's, that's been the convention it, for a while. It has been a convention, in well, especially neuropharmacology. in neuropharmacology and in physics as well. It was it's the knowledge they don't believe that you need understanding as long as you just keep gaining and building upon evolutionarily collected. Basically, superstitious knowledge. Superstition is simply believing something without having an actual understanding of, of the all methodology. That, that leads up to it. Yeah. And, and so you can believe in something superstitiously even though there's ample evidence and, mm -hmm. or even overwhelming evidence for it when you, do but not it's still, have, right. when you do not have an understanding of the mechanisms that underlie the phenomena that you, and you're just taking that as your bottom level. That's what happens so many times is instead of understanding... People just try to grow knowledge without any understanding, and that's yeah. and there and 
Yeah, it's it's sad that somebody has to communicate that in this article. It's saying it's like you know, if we understand the mechanisms instead of just collecting, hey, it works. Let's move forward. Uh, you know, because some shit stuck to a wall when we just flail at it enough. Uh, you know, then maybe we won't have all the side effects and other crazy bullshit. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly right. That's, and it's sad that, it, that that is a constant problem in science. So we have to say, you need understanding, not just knowledge. Knowledge is for computer brains, okay? We need people brains, people, you know, things that understand, not, not AI. We don't, you don't need to make yourself into a, a, a poor AI. Um, the last paragraph is, is cute. Um, one of the most exciting and remarkable things about this field of research is that, fundamentally, my brain is learning about itself through my work. As you reach the end of this article, some of the neurons in your brain have undergone the process I have described here. Perhaps they have made new connections or strengthened existing ones and formed new memories by encoding information about themselves in your brain. Brainception! Whoa! The interesting thing, and so this was written in 2018. It okay. is uh, the oldest article we have. Oh, okay. Because we had an article and we had news stories, so the news ones were yeah. like last month and this month. Uh, but this is an article that I found interesting. And that basically, for those who have uh, stuck around through the first two news things, uh, got to learn, uh, got to put what they learned in the beginning of the show into more context by learning about how the brain works uh, on a basic level through this article. So I, right. I appreciated it, uh, giving an exposition yeah, mm -hmm. of, of how it works. But what I find interesting is one of the comments here from Paul Adams that says, the article is nice, but misses the main point. Synapse-specific calcium signals generated by coincidence spikes. It's still not clear whether standard explanations are adequate for the accuracy required. So it's funny that he's pointing out when was calcium that thing. When was that comment made? Ah, four weeks ago. But that's still before the most recent article. But he probably heard about it. That article... It was published a week ago. Was it? Yeah. Maybe just heard about the uh, other people doing. All right, uh, the, the the calcium has been found in rat brains, mm -hmm. so they has been found in rodents, but never before. In Read that 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 um, comment again. Um, it's somebody, an associate professor at UTMB and a professor at the Stony Brook University. So right. he probably knows he probably, people yeah. who know people. Who, yeah. He probably knew. Well, yeah, go, the article is nice, but misses the main point: synapse-specific calcium signals generated by coincidence spikes. So I don't know what he's talking about. With the, the addition of coincidence spikes makes it weird. But um, synapse specific calcium signals. Calcium signals generated by coincidence spikes. Well, we may be talking about coincidence spikes. Is what I was talking about before, which is the field, field effects. effects, right? Yeah, which is why I thought it was interesting and wanted to bring it synchrony. up. Synchrony, synchrony in, uh, in in sets of neurons lead it, uh, encodes information. That idea is a huge new thing that is kind of a divider between old school and, and uh, newer uh, ideas of how it is that the brain does more than just, you know, very simple linear types of calculation that we do with, uh, you know, our, our current computer hardware. Yeah, and the, uh, the only link of this person, it's, it's a Facebook um, comment. Well, it's a comment through Facebook somehow. He signed it through Facebook or whatever because clicking on the name Paul Adams gives me his Facebook. Um, Stony Brook University professor at the moment, which is in uh, New York, but places lived is um, Nikolausberg, I'm assuming Germany, mm -hmm. Cambridge. <laughs> so there is a, a storied uh, history here. Inspirational people, Francis Crick. Good for him. 
Um, but yeah, so uh, anyway, he, he is clearly an academic and therefore, you know, probably knows of the calcium mediated action potential. What specifically was calcium mediated action potentials in where though? I wish we had that article access to the entirety of the dendritic action potentials and computation in human layer two and three cortical neurons, damn it. The idea that they can keep, they can keep something behind a, a paywall indefinitely is fucking criminal. Is it indefinite? Yeah, no, it's fucking indefinite. There's there's articles from like the 19 fucking 50s I can't get to. Ah, it's the worst. That is not fun. Uh, doo -doo -doo. That's all I had. Well, that was fun. That yeah. Was fun. Uh, short and sweet to the point. I mean, the uh, uh, they all kind of led into each other mm -hmm. with the whole magnetite thing that uh, really fits with my point about there being this general um, field. Yes, mm -hmm. right. The the field effects uh, and and when you have so so one of the the other things that uh, that is kind of commonly known as a method for short ter short term storage of information is through the astroglia and what's called the uh, there's the gap junctions between astroglia allow um, ions to uh, ion concentrations to slowly shift from one to another and stay kind of they don't instantaneously change nearly as fast as like you know how an action potential travels through a cell really quickly whereas instead these gap junctions uh, mediating the the you know the charge in a given um, astrocyte means that it can store after a field has gone over it and and changed the the uh, the density especially if it's come over gone over it numerous times what you end up having is kind of a a recording of what's passed by and uh you know that's held in the um um that's held, held in the astrocytes and that's one of the ways in which the um uh if you combine that with this this finding about um magnetite i was hoping that they would say whether what cells were holding the magnetite and I'm, I it would be um, I, I would guess that almost certainly it's in the um, glial cells mm -hmm. and that it's not in the uh, in the, the neuronal bodies but so so therefore I think that what it's what happens is you kind of have these pathways in the brain that are much more variable than neurons uh, that, that that's the reason why we can accomplish very short-term um, uh, memory-based tasks. In other words, how is it that you keep a context of what you're thinking about over a period of time? Mm -hmm. uh, what what generally guides that? And I think it has to do with field effects and the slower actions of the brain that are not um, as widely understood uh, mm -hmm. as uh, as the the more linear uh, systems. Right. It's basically it's our analog systems that are very important. Um, I mean, the digital systems that, that are at the bottom level are, of course, important for very specific, detailed uh, decision-making, you know, those critical junctions. But what what causes the overall trajectory of things, what subtly influences the, you know, the network is not, you know, when, it, when we talk about probabilities. So, so whenever a, a, an action potential actually reaches threshold, you know, so there's, there's all these uh, dendrites synapsing uh well the en the ends of axons are synapsing on the, the the dendrites and then there so there's this kind of a voting thing going on to, de to determine whether or not that it's um that neuron's going to fire that is 
always there's always some level of uh, synapse firing occurring, and it's only once it gets to the threshold that that actually causes the whole neuron to fire. So we we see that as kind of a random thing. However, uh, what if our idea of the randomness of it is is kind of incorrect, and there's more data there uh, happening that is uh, that it will be better understood through these more analog computing processes. In other words, there are subtleties that yes, at the at the bottom level there are these go no go types of um, uh, specifics, but those go no go specifics are dependent upon much more soft uh, probability. Well, we can, well, right now we use probability as the, because you, you know, certain complex things, all you can do is treat it with probability because mm -hmm. there's too much complexity to it. But uh, right, I find that the whole thing is kind there. of ironic that, that we're having to use linear methods, extremely linear, one protein at a time, linear methods to discover and figure out the action the gross action, a gross um, combined action of the larger system. Right, which and is completely nonlinear. And that's the problem that it, is that you have a, a difficulty connecting. That's like, you can go through an engine, for instance. Let's say, that's all, I love the, the analogy of mm -hmm. engines, and people kind of tease me sometimes about how much I, I talk about engines. Uh, but the, um, the every single part in an engine can be functional, mm -hmm. perfectly functional at its job. However, if the timing of the engine is off or if the parts are not perfectly aligned then the engine won't work right and so the same thing would be true uh, you know we you can when you're focused on these finite things understanding the larger scale um coordination uh coordination dynamics to use a word that uh, recently came up in in one of my groups um is is just as crucial as those specific uh, more finite things, and and so it's there's a, we often tend to get lost in the details, and therefore we you know can't see the forest for the trees. Yeah, and um, uh, to to add a note to as we mentioned earlier, you can by applying magnet to an outside of someone's head in a specific area, you can flip their um, judgment of outcome mattering versus intent mattering, um, and that that is a very specific thing that you can do. Um, and so the question is, how dangerous is it to allow that kind of technology to exist? Well, my argument would be that affecting the brain with a magnet is a very predictable and specific change. Affecting minds with words and ideas, that's where the mind control is. It's not in the magnetics, it's in the words, it's in the ideas, it's in, as we were saying earlier, the loops. What loops are you most frequently running through? Uh, whether by your own thinking or by listening to other people tell you things. And the problem is most people think that their that their thoughts come from magic juju. And or, they thems don't, or themselves purely. Right, or, and they don't believe in any kind of unconscious or subconscious mind because they don't believe that they're, that the thoughts that are coming to their mind now had all of these subcomponents and went through a machinery type of process. And were predetermined a couple of seconds ago. Right. And it's or like, longer. Right, or much longer. Much actually. longer, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so that there are all of these various... You know, it's basically you have to see your brain more as a factory, and that there's and that thoughts are going through all of these subassembly processes under the uh, uh, before they even get to what you think of as your conscious self, your mind, and you're not aware of those sub processes. There are tens of thousands. It's like the the conscious mind is like the 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 inspector at the end of an assembly line, 
it's like the, you, you you kind of make these go no go decisions on whether or not this thought that has, that has arrived at your inspection station is good or bad but there's an entire factory of subassembled parts and, and little tiny decisions made along the way that sometimes you have some access to change those the the points at which what will happen under given circumstances but for the most part you're you are just you're doing the go no go you're not mm -hmm. you're not part of that entire factory's work no. because it's so much of it has control. to do with your beliefs has to do with there's an amazing amount of your what your your beliefs about reality have to do with the language that you speak because of the way in which you think of certain words and how, how, they, and how they are connected to other words and where what their etymology is and you have this inference and understanding underneath the surface that gives a general vector to the way that you will position your thought patterns and so that's why uh, like people who are non-english speakers you can detect them uh, even if they speak english perfectly because the the non-standard way in which they will use language uh -huh. will be somewhat unfamiliar to somebody who is who only speaks one language for the most part and uh, and, and you'll see that they're well i'm, I'm sure that most people would assume that I'm either multilingual or I am not, but, uh, but the way in which I assemble words is somewhat non-standard for mm -hmm. English language speakers. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, good. The, the factory analogy, like, you're not the factory foreman. You're not a factory worker. You're not the factory <laughs> owner. You're at best quality control. <laughs> right. You, you do a QC. Every once in a while, QC gets to go back in the factory and say, Hey, at this point that we're doing this, we should be doing this other thing, right? And, and then goes back to the uh, at the end the of front. the line, yeah. and then and then somebody else ha uh, tries to uh, conform to that 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 thing change that and, change, yeah. uh, and that's and that's how you kind of tend to change your mind. But so much is uh, you know people are sending you bad materials. They're giving they're, there's there the glues and the and shit like that are all fucked up sometimes. Uh, you know sometimes there's a there's a shortage of certain materials. There's so much fucking going on back sometimes there. Sometimes the workers are on strike. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes the manager is really shitty and needs to be replaced. But the, 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 it's a huge problem when people do not see their own thoughts that way, but think of their mm -hmm. thoughts as coming from a magical soul, you know, juju. That's that is such a huge problem because of there's so many things that relate to understanding that your thoughts come from somewhere and had and are a combination of a tremendous amount of other data and that that leads to your thoughts it's mm -hmm. not your thoughts are not magic you're not magic on the inside and being able to understand that leads to a tremendous amount of other perspectives uh just like what we're talking about with language just viewing yourself in a different fashion changes your the way you what what um conclusions you come to i forget what it was specifically that uh set me off on this particular path we were talking about what were we saying just before i started talking about the factory talking about mind control and how ideas um yes right that you experience so or... mind control having to do with uh so why does why did propaganda work in in germany uh it's like why does propaganda work at all why is it that, that uh, many companies spend more on advertising than they do on their product um because subtle changes subtle subconscious viewpoints change the vector change the the area of the forest you'll end up in sure you may do all the operation on the tree but how, what area of the forest did you end up in you know it's so there's these these little things along the way little pathways that you know have to do with the lay of the land 
you know, and you're just, a lot of times you're just focused on, well, here I am, I made this decision to cut down this particular tree. Did you though? Because the lay of the land kind of pushed you in a certain direction. There was, uh, you know, a, a bear that scared you off in this other way over here. There was a proximity to your house. There was, you know, did you, how much of that decision was made by the land that you had to traverse to get to that particular tree? And of course, you know, how do we define mind control too? Because there's the, the brainwashing level of somebody who completely believes something the opposite of what they used to believe in. That's that, nonsense. That's, that doesn't work unless you're looking for an excuse or you're leaving yourself open to that possibility. It's like well, there's a certain amount of torture, be, et cetera, that you can yeah. sort of do some of that. But it's really more about subtlety. Subtle right. control is far more powerful than that kind of direct, overt huge change right so there's making mild small changes is the power not the right. big changes that's the unfortunate thing that most mm -hmm. people really don't understand is that they think you got to make this gargantuan right. change for it to and be a brain change. wash somebody but you don't realize there's low levels of mind control that exist every day around us yeah constantly you're cut you are a wash in it every single day every moment i mean truth of the matter is speech itself is basically a, a type of control that we allow we allow people to influence what our mind is doing at that moment by listening to them and then we make Giving decisions on to... about it we're, we're we have attention to the fact that we've right. allowed them to control the processes of our mind during that period we've kind of assented to it but everything we're experiencing and the there's a lot more going on there under the surface that we don't have the time to consider in each moment. There's just not that much bandwidth to consider that many different things and how it's going to, how one set of data is going to impact another set of data, how various subtle ways in which something is presented to you will, will you know, give you a certain perspective about that situation. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's just, um, yeah, I guess the, pe the people who don't believe in the subconscious mind uh, are very much, much more open to subtle control. They don't know that because they believe By open, that, I mean like uh, leaving themselves open. Oh, yeah. They're completely <laughs> leaving themselves open to, 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 to subtle control because they don't believe subtle control exists. So right. Therefore, therefore they're, they're never watching for it. Right. Because they think their brain is magic and every decision that they made was completely right then. What, they, they did it. And, 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 every, and the only thing that happened in that moment is them making a decision. And they don't understand what a decision is. <laughs> and I will uh, attempt to find and link right here, right now, uh, in the upper right-hand corner, a card for um, um, a cherry stem that we did uh, called Elephant in the Brain, where we discussed, I think that's what it was called, it might be called something else, but we discussed the uh, the ways in which the brain uh, makes decisions for, for you uh, long before it enters awareness. There's some fun, um, fun studies on that. Yeah, I literally, somebody uh, just the other day said in some email, that's like, oh, it's just ridiculous that the idea that someone could know uh more about your thoughts than you do it's like um that's simply empirically false okay? yeah there's we, we readily uh and have many many experiments that show in a very simple straightforward direct fashion that you can know more about a brain than that brain knows about itself mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like it's uh you know and the thoughts going on in it of course yeah. so it's just the we but the that is an implicit absurdity that's been culturally felt by people, especially religious people, for you know thousands of generations, this idea that uh, I am in control of my brain. What else is in control of my brain? Uh, I know absolutely everything within my domain of of me because the I right now sense all of me. But that's just not true. You don't sense all of you. Mm -hmm. All of you is not available to that topical you 
that is the conscious awake uh, mind. Yeah. Otherwise, who is it? Who is it you're struggling against in your dream? Who surprised you and scared you inside your own fucking head? Mm -hmm. You did. That's who. <laughs> I can do that if there's just one of you. Right. And on that note, speaking of. You enjoying this episode because you did and it was great and you loved yourself and you loved us and we all love each other and it's awesome. Uh, also, we cursed shit fuck cunt motherfucker tits. <laughs> I bet you don't see that on YouTube these days, do you? No, sir. There's also no annoying ass commercials, are there? No, there aren't. And you know why? Because no we ain't monetized, bitch. We are not monetized. We are brought to you by the sweat and blood of our tears. <laughs> and, and our you, tears bleed. And you can help us by joining patreon.com slash Anna Cherry. Select a membership level at challenger mode is what I would recommend, but there's other levels you can peruse. You could be more awesome. I mean, that's, that's a choice you can make. Or you can make no choice at all and simply follow us and enjoy the Cherry Stem episodes that we have uploaded to Patreon for free. And you can download the audio version and you can check all the resources that we have. But if you would like to support us and if you like what we do here, you can support directly through Streamlabs or you can support, you know, the monthly uh, through Patreon. Set or if it and you like it. all that we do, because it's not just what we do right here. There's an overarching thing that you can, as you start to understand who we are, you can sense what it is that we do overall. And that is trying to make the world a better place in a variety of ways. It's that we really have a genuine intent to do that. And if you like that about us, supporting us, we we have a lot of difficulties in attempting to remain, um, you know, apart from, well, what's it called? Uh, just, uh, you know, not selling out, I suppose, is, is, the, is the simpler Keeping way Keeping our integrity it. and independence. Yes, exactly. Integrity and independence. Attempting to do that. And so, if you want to help us, man. That shit is rough. It's hard to do by yourself. It's so hard. <laughs> it's really hard. The world doesn't tend to reward good behavior no no but you can because you do because i believe in the wisdom of crowds when it comes to that i believe that people can lift each other I, up better than systems can yeah. exactly yep. i believe that individuals can eventually change the, the system systems go wrong because they're big dumb animals mm -hmm. but individuals can change those systems and make them smart and not only are we intending to change the world but we also frequently change ourselves because you cannot change the world unless you change yourself and we are super into giving you tools on how to do that. Come grow with us. Join our Discord. There are special rooms for patrons, but everyone's welcome. Check out all the links down below and come join us. And thank you. And we will see you next Monday. God willing. <laughs> Good night. Peace.